Matthew 26, 1 through 16 is our text this morning. Hear the word of the living God. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the living God, and may He write its truths upon our hearts. Would you pray with me again? Father, we come to You once more on this Lord's Day morning, and as we approach Your Word, as we approach this particular text in this particular section of the Gospel of Matthew, Lord, it, it's like we're entering the Holy of Holies. We're taking steps towards the cross. And Lord, as You inspired through Your Spirit, Matthew, to write these words, God, I pray that, that through them today and through the proclamation of them through preaching that Your people would, would grow, grow to love Jesus and treasure Him in ways, Lord, that are expressed beautifully. I pray for anyone here who, who doesn't know you yet, who doesn't see you as the treasure that you are. Lord, I pray that you'd open eyes today. Do miracles and open the eyes of blind. Heal brokenhearted. Save the lost. Encourage the faint-hearted. Do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. This uh, section of Matthew, we, we just ended last week the Olivet Discourse, which covered the last couple chapters, and um, we, we saw, this was really now we're coming to a shift in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the fifth uh, discourse is now done, it is completed, and the teachings of Jesus as divided up by Matthew into uh, five different sections, if you will, and some have... have, have 
Compare that to even the Pentateuch, the five different books of Moses, and this is, this is kind of the re-establishment, if you will, of, of God's law through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, we are really in an incredible section ahead of us. It, it's, I feel, I mean, I'm getting, I get little goosebumps thinking about what's ahead of us when we consider the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we're going. We're going to the cross and then we're coming to the end of the Great Commission. So we're literally climbing the peaks of redemptive history. And we're getting to the, you can see the pinnacle now. We're almost to the crest. And Jesus had just spent the last several chapters, in, according to Matthew's gospel, uh, pronouncing judgment. We saw him pronounce judgment on the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. We, we saw him announcing judgment that was coming upon the temple and the city of Jerusalem, and, and, then, and then the final judgment that was to come upon his coming again. Jesus had presented himself as the judge, as the king, as the one with all authority, and, and now he starts this chapter in a particular way talking to the disciples really with a shift in the emphasis to make sure that they understand something. That yes, there's a crown that's, that's coming, but first there's a cross. And as humans, we don't like that, do we? First there's a cross to bear before there's a crown you can wear. And the disciples must have been excited about what Jesus was talking about and all these amazing things coming and the thought of his, his glorious kingdom that was ahead. And they had no idea, even though he had told them multiple times, they still didn't get it. It kept flying over their heads, and it seems like it's going to do that again in this passage today. So as we move into the cross, we, we come to this section of Matthew. We're going to see three things in these three different vignettes today that Matthew highlights for us. First thing is that nothing about the cross of Christ is a whim. Secondly, that nothing poured out in worship of Christ is a waste. And thirdly, that nothing exchanged for Christ is ever worth it. So let's go to point one. Nothing about the cross of Christ is a whim, is an accident, is by chance. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He really can't get any more clear. He had already told them on different occasions, that he was going to be killed, that he was going to die. He was going to deliver up himself to death. Now he's even being very specific on how that death is going to come across. It's going to be a crucifixion. He immediately turns their attention to the cross. And the cross, as we're going to see in this short few sentences, is not simply man's work against God. But it's going to display God's ability to, to overturn what man meant for evil and to bring about the ultimate greatest good that man has ever known. So he lays it out. He, he, he puts it around this understanding of Passover. 
In a couple days, Passover is coming. Let's remind ourselves if, if we're familiar with it, or, or if not, let me explain very briefly Passover, what it is. It's, it's this ancient uh, celebration that God commanded the Israelites to celebrate every year as a reminder of the exodus from Egypt, that they had been slaves in Egypt, that they, they, were, they, were, they did not belong to, 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 they belonged to another master, if you will. They were in Egypt, and Pharaoh was the king of Egypt, and, and he had them under harsh slavery, and God sends Moses, the deliverer, to come and to announce deliverance to them. And, and if you remember, there was ten plagues that happened in Egypt, all different plagues, and the last one was this plague where God would send the death angel to every household throughout all of Egypt. And God's people were called to do something. They were called to sacrifice a lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and pour it out and to take that blood and put, put it on the doorposts of their homes. And as the death angel would pass over it all throughout Egypt, they would see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the home and they would pass over that home and would go on to strike all of those who were not covered under the blood of the Lamb. Accidental? Coincidental? <laughs> Chance? Not at all. You see, Passover had always been about an atoning sacrifice for sin. And blood was to cover that sin. The angel would only pass over if the blood of the Lamb had been applied. And when we think of sin, rebellion against God, Pharaoh was, was very representative of that sin where there was this thought of, I will be my own God. Worship me. And lest we condemn Pharaoh, that's what every one of us has done. And Jesus is announcing that the Son of Man will be delivered up. There, there's a plan in place. There's something that's, that's happening. There's, there's been this plan of, of redemption for, for humanity that God now is beginning to work out at just the right perfect time. And how that has worked out is, is mind-blowing to the disciples, and it should continue to be mind-blowing to us today. Forgiveness, redemption comes through the humiliation of God, through the condescension of God in becoming man, living on this earth, despised and rejected of men, being tempted in, in every way yet without sin, and then willingly laying himself down as the sacrificial Passover lamb, His blood shed on the cross. This is not an accident. Jesus declares the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. We see in Acts 2 when Peter is preaching at, the, at this launch in, of the, the New Testament church that, that he, he calls in chapter 2 verse 22 to the men of Israel, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's a great mystery. It's something very challenging to fathom because God here is doing what God does where He's using events of history to bring about His glorious purposes. And the cross is the epitome of that. Where the, these evil men are used, they crucified. It was their choices, and yet behind the scenes, there's this definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He's even using their evil to accomplish the greatest of goods. This was not a whim. The cross of Christ was not something easily and quickly made up. This was... This was established with the divine counsel of the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past. The plan of salvation, the plan of redemption was God's plan all along. It displays His glory, it displays His love, it displays His character greater than anything. The Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for Himself, a royal title. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Verse 3 presents another shift of the scene. In my mind, I've, just because we're modern people, I guess, I, I, when I read this, sometimes I picture it in my mind, and, and I picture, you know, if you're watching a movie, or, and it shifts to the whole different scene. So imagine that with me in your mind. You see Jesus sitting with His disciples, and He, he just lays this out and tells them this. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Passover's in a few days. This is what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, a shift to another scene, and you, you see this room, and all these people are gathered. Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. Again, happenstance, whim, chance, random, accident, not at all. How many times had they already tried to kill Jesus and Jesus said, nope, not the right time. He just slipped away. One time they were so angry at Him, they, they're coming at Him with force of a crowd and He just slips away. You got the wrong timing, guys. Yes, God will use that anger. Yes, God will use that hatred and all of that sin that's, that's epitomized by the, the, the religious leaders and the elders of the people of the day wanting to kill the Son of God. And, and on Passover, of all things, it's, it's, it's Passover week. And here, there, that, think about it. That's like a bunch of political and religious leaders getting together on Christmas Eve to plot to kill and murder somebody. Who does that? It's certainly a display of the sinfulness of men. The sinfulness that apart from Christ, every single one of us are bound to. They gather together in the palace the high priest plotting, scheming. We're going to arrest him. We're going we're to do it by stealth. We don't want anyone to see. We're going to kill him. Is this new? 
many years before, the psalmist, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had already prophesied such things. Psalm 31, verse 13, speaking in the voice of the Messiah, for I hear the whispering of many terrors on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. All of this according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. All of this displaying the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You see, that's the thing about sin. When we look at such a passage and we find it often hard to understand, how could you come to the point of being so blinded by sin that you want to kill the living God, the Son of God Himself? And see, sin not only kills, but sin blinds. And so they want to do this, they want to do it secretly, they want to do it in a hidden fashion. In verse 5, they, they say, not during the feast. So we want to arrest them and we want to kill them, we want to do it by stealth, but, but not during the feast. Why? Lest there be an uproar among the people. See, they knew and understood Jesus' popularity. Think about it. If you understand anything about Passover, you know the city of Jerusalem swells with people at Passover time. So you have the residents of Jerusalem who live there each year, but then everyone else from the nation of Israel comes and gathers upon the city of Jerusalem. So you have hundreds of thousands of people, many of them from Galilee, which, where Jesus had done most of His ministry up in the northern region. And they loved Him, and He was popular. He, he did most of His miracles up there. I believe we, we went through this in the triumphal entry. Those were the ones that were celebrating his, his entry into Jerusalem, welcoming the coming king. They know that. They're not stupid men. So they look and they're saying, we want to kill him, we want to arrest him, but, but not during the feast. Got to keep it hushed, keep it quiet, lest there be an uproar of the people. You see, they wanted it hidden. Let's keep this hidden. Let's keep the cross hidden. No one, we don't want anyone to see the death of the Messiah. And isn't it ironic that the very thing that they wanted hidden became the very heart of the gospel that's been proclaimed for the past 2,000 years around the globe? Do you notice in verse 5 also they have their timing that they desire? We want them dead, but not during the feast. <laughs> when did he die? <laughs> during the feast. You see, man plans his ways, but God, God directs all his paths. When we think about the cross and how Jesus makes it very clear here that this is an intentional thing. We understand the intentionality of it that helps us understand the ultimate purpose of it. Isaiah 53, 6 through 12, when we think of Jesus saying the Son of Man will be delivered up, handed over, that word handed over or delivered up that's used in our Bibles is, it's an important word, especially in the coming uh, sections of Matthew. It's used 14 times in, in the next couple chapters. 
handed over, delivered up, delivered up, delivered up. It's the same word also that's used in Romans 1 that speaks of the depravity of man and the sinfulness of men being so deep that God hands them over to their sin. It's, it's a word that references judgment, which, which to think about it, that's the ultimate of judgments. The ultimate of judgment, the wrath of God ultimately isn't like getting struck by lightning, like a lot of times we think it's going to be. The ultimate of judgments is God saying, I give you up to yourselves. I turn you over, I hand you over to judgment. Jesus is particular, I believe, in these words. He, son of man, will be delivered up as a, as a phrase of understanding. There's judgment. And so here's the, the beauty of, of what's happening in the cross is that the judge, he just spent the last several chapters showing him as the judge. And the judge himself will become the judged. Why? As a sacrifice for sin. As a Passover lamb, not as one who deserves it, but as one who willingly, just as Isaiah 53 says, that, that he bore our sins. The iniquity of us all was laid on him. This is the plan of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit voluntarily walked out in obedience by Jesus the Son. He wasn't forced to it. He was part of the plan. He made the plan. And He walks out the plan. And as we spend the next weeks looking at the cross, and as we actually get there, I pray we would never grow calloused nor, 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 nor casual about how we hear about the cross. That we wouldn't speak about it in casual terms of just like, oh, He died for my sins. Do you understand what's behind that? This also shows us some amazing truths about how we walk out our everyday lives. How do we as, as people who, who face temptation and trials and, and live in the midst of a fallen world, the difficulties of, of living as Christians on planet death, how do we live? We understand this truth. That even in his death, Jesus was in full control of everything. Nothing was a whim. Even in his death, full and total control. And you see, God, God as God knows how to draw straight with crooked lines. He specializes in taking ruin and, and through ruin bringing beauty, bringing glory. And the cross not only is the, the greatest display of God's love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, but it also, as those who believe in Christ and walk with Him and follow Him, ought to give us a great sense of assurance that we can trust Him in everything, no matter what the circumstance, that we can trust Him. 
This is challenging when you have difficulties and things in front of you don't understand. Do you think the disciples were understanding what's going on? They don't get it, but they finally got it. And when they got it, they were bold. And they they were courageous. And they moved forward with bold faith in everything that they did. Why? Because they knew this about their Christ. They understood that their God is a trustworthy God who can take the worst of situations and circumstances and even in the depths of sin and He can turn it and bring good. So trust Him. Nothing about the cross of Christ is a win. Secondly, nothing poured out in worship of Christ is a waste. We see the plan of God as Jesus in these short few sentences has shown us what's, what's ahead and, and why it's ahead because it's in the plan of God. And then he turns the scene away from the, the chief priests and the elders and all these religious leaders who were, who were plotting murder, and he turns them upon a woman who has a heart of worship. And I want you to see this in Matthew, because we're going to end on a third scene that's going to kind of take us back into the heart of the depth of sin. But in the middle of these two scenes of, of, of murder and rebellion and betrayal, we see a, the most glorious picture of what true worship looks like. And Matthew is very strategic. As we've studied his gospel, I hope you've seen it. He's very strategic in the placement of certain things. This Matthew doesn't write chronologically. He's picking and choosing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, where to put what for particular reasons. And I believe this is very purposeful of why he puts this. John actually puts this story of, 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 of the woman anointing Jesus before the triumphal entry. Matthew's not, not doing it one day at a time. Matthew's referencing them for specific reasons. He just talked about the cross ahead, and the cross is planned, and all these religious leaders are are in sinful evil trying to plot the murder of him, and he's in full control, and in the middle of that, then he presents this story. Verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, who obviously was no longer a leper, I believe he's probably one, one, one of the lepers Jesus healed. And so Simon has this dinner, and he invites them all over. He's in Bethany, which, which is the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it says in verse 7, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, John chapter 12, you can read it, gives us a few other details about this particular story. John lets us know who the woman is. Matthew doesn't tell us her name. John tells us it's Mary the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. So this woman, Mary, comes up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. John gives us the detail of how expensive. This is a costly, valuable, potential heirloom. It could have represented her whole life savings of her and maybe her whole family. It was worth 300 denarii, according to what John writes, which was a full year's wages. So take whatever the average salary of a whole year would be, and that's the, the, you know, let's just, let's make it an even 50 grand. Let's say $50,000 is in this little alabaster flask. 
And she takes this and she breaks it open and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. John tells us she had also poured it on his feet and wiped it with her hair. Matthew highlights the head because Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king. He's the king of kings. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And and so she pours it out on his head. He's laying there. Can you picture this? They're all having a big dinner party, and they, they used to recline on their side at the time, and they'd lay on these pillows, and they would eat, and, lie, you know, and, the, and, and here's this woman, Mary, comes in, humbly, quietly, just comes in, breaks this thing open, and pours it out. Verse 8 says, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, which is a serious word. They're mad. They're upset. They're offended. They're indignant at her saying, why this waste? And that word waste is a, is a powerful word as well. Apaleia, it, it literally means destruction, damnation, ruin. Why this waste? This could have been sold for a, a large sum and given to the poor. And perhaps the disciples were thinking altruistically, perhaps they were actually looking at it and, and thinking that, that you know, out of good intentions, like, wow, we, we, really, we really could have used that for something greater. But John also gives us the detail that there's a ringleader leader that led them together to think this. And it was Judas. Judas, the betrayer. John says Judas was a thief. And he used to, to take from the money bag. He was the treasurer of the disciples. And, and he used to take from that and use it for his own personal gain. And they didn't know that. They thought good things about Judas. We learn in John later, in John 18, that Judas, when he left the, 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 uh, the Last Supper, when they were having the Passover together, and Jesus announces him as the traitor, if you will, they didn't know it, but still, he leaves to go out to betray Jesus. They think he's going out to, to buy more supplies because he's a treasure, or to, to give an offering to the poor. They had good thoughts of Judas. They didn't suspect him to be a bad guy. And so you can imagine this, this scene taking place. This woman takes takes a 50, 60, 75,000, who knows, $100,000 bottle of perfume, if you will, and starts pouring it out on Jesus, empties the whole thing in one sitting. And they're looking on like, can you see Judas? (gasps) Guys, do you know how much that's worth? Do you know what we could have done with you? How many people that could have helped And little did they know, he's thinking, you know how much I could have spent? He's mad. So he gets them going, he instigates the disciples, and they're all looking at him, mad at her. How can she do such an extravagant waste? Verse 8. Excuse me, we went through verse 8, verse, uh, verse 10. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? And I love this because Jesus does exactly what a good high priest would do, a good advocate would do. He runs to the defense of his own. Why are you troubling her? Leave her alone, John says. It says in John. For she has done a beautiful thing. The thing you call a waste, Jesus calls beautiful. She's done a beautiful thing to me. And then he says in verse 11, For you, you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And he's, he's, he's not being unsympathetic there to the poor. He's actually, you know, he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 15, which basically says you, you, the poor are always going to be with you, so take care of the poor. But he's making a comparison to saying that certainly all of that could have gone to the poor and it could have honored God, but but you understand who's in front of you right now. Do you understand the worth of the Son of God, of the Son of Man, of the Messiah, of God Himself in human flesh standing right in front of you and what's about to happen to Him and why He's here? Do you get it? She's done an amazingly beautiful thing for me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Again, he, he leads us to the, to the death. He leads us to the cross. And then he gives this beautiful proclamation, truly I say to you, what, what, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. There's a couple of really neat things in there. One, what is he already assuming? Because he knows. He's assuming there's a coming global mission that's going to go out to the whole world. He, Twelve ragtag disciples, and Jesus is looking at them and like, eventually in... in 2023, on October 1st, in San Diego, California, there's going to be a weird guy named Brian who's going to be reading about her in honor of her and what she's done for me. This act of worship, 2,000 years later, here we are talking about this beautiful display of worship and love and devotion to Jesus. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with me, but you will not always have me. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He asked the question pointedly, is anything wasted, which is all for Jesus? It's a waste. Is anything wasted, which is all for Jesus? It might rather seem as if all would be wasted which was not given to him. In John chapter 12, as John writes of the same story, he tells us in verse 3 that when she broke open the alabaster box and poured it out, that this 
house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, let's talk for just a minute about this perfume. Very expensive ointment that Jesus said she was using to prepare his body for burial. That was similar ointments were used for burial preparations, and Jesus was killed in such haste on the cross and taken down on the Sabbath that his body had no chance to be prepared. They just put it into the tomb. And so all of these prophetic things are happening. Here this woman Mary who, who loves Jesus does a prophetic act that she doesn't even realize what she's doing. And what I want to, no- what I want to notice and highlight is the heart of the worshiper. She pours out this, this expensive bottle. This, think about that. How would you look upon that? We might be similar to the disciples. Like that was just way too much. That was, was it an excessive offering? Wasn't it an excessive act? It was. It's an amazingly excessive act, and yet, and yet the, the, the excess of the act is tempered by the heart of the worshiper. Here she is coming in gratefulness, and she didn't even know the fullness of what he was going to do, but she understood who he was. She believed what he said. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the king. You're the judge. You're my master. You're my Lord. You're the one who deserves all, all and everything. So what is this, what is this life savings I had compared to you? You're here in front of me. I, to, to pour it out upon you is the greatest of, 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 of ways I can express my worship to you. And we have to be, we do have to be careful in reading narrative passages like, like these Gospels, because a lot of times then we'll run off and just say, okay, I need to go home and, you know, sell my house. Like, no, no you just, you love Jesus, you're going to go home and put it on the market, and you're going to give it all away, and Gracie's going to be like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? And we have to approach it with, with a perspective of how we understand Scripture. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. There's epistles that are prescriptive, like husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. There's no principle necessarily needed there. It's a command. <laughs> Do it, right? Now, obviously, in these passages, though, of narrative that are describing what was going on in redemptive history, there are principles that we pull out that Matthew, I believe in particular, wants us to understand. What principles is Matthew wanting us to grasp as readers of his gospel in 2023? I believe he wants us to understand the essence of true worship. It's full submission. It's total surrender. It's, a, it's an understanding of, of who Jesus is and what He's done. And Mary, 
understood who he was. She knew he'd healed people. She knew he'd raised her own brother from the dead. She didn't know the fullness of what was coming in the next few days. But with what she knew about Jesus as the Lord, as the Master, as the King, and in what she knew about what he had done, she understood something about how much he was worth. Was it an extravagant expression of worship? It certainly was. Driven by a heart that is totally overwhelmed with the goodness and the grace and the glory of God. The opposite of true worship must be sin. Must look at things done for or a heart that loves Christ and expresses it in ways that perhaps might even appear odd or extravagant or or different than the norm. Might be looked down upon. I wonder if when it comes to our worship, whether it's corporately or whether it's to, to our, our daily worship and how we do our everyday tasks, the way we, we live our life, do we truly live it for the glory of Christ? Do we, do we want to live it for the glory of Christ in such a way that He shines the brightest and, and we're displaying through some acts of, of worship, perhaps even that might look obsessive to people? Are we more fearful of what people are going to say? Are we more of, of concerned about how they're going to see us than we are about Christ being valued and glorified and worshipped for what He's actually worth? Sin, the essence of sin is this unwillingness to worship that way. This unwillingness to relinquish your rights to what to, to everything, including the life that you have. An unwillingness to relinquish that from my hands to the one who gave it to me in the first place. Are we embarrassed like these disciples? at what extravagant worship might look like. And if we are, what does that reveal? What does that reveal about us? To her, Jesus was more valuable than all her possessions all her property, her financial security. Jesus was more valuable. Charles Spurgeon wrote these words on this passage, all those who have done wonders for Christ have always been called eccentric and fanatical. Why, when Whitfield first went to Bennington Common to preach, Because he could not find a building large enough, it was quite an unheard of thing to preach in the open air. How could you expect God to hear prayer? 
if there was not a roof over the top of the people's heads? <laughs> How could souls be blessed if the people had no seats and regular high-backed pews to sit in? <laughs> Whitfield was thought to be doing something outrageous, but he went and did it. He went and broke the alabaster box on the head of his master, and in the midst of scoffs and jeers, he preached in the open air, and what came of it? A revival of godliness and a mighty spread of religion. I wish we were all of us ready to do some extraordinary thing for Christ, willing to be laughed at, to be called fanatics, to be hooted and scandalized because we went out of the common way and were not content with doing what everybody else could do or approve to be done. May our worship be driven not by what people may think, but what the Master desires and what He's worth. Point three, nothing exchanged for Christ is worth it. We end going from a beautiful scene of true worship back into the ugly depths of sin. Verse 14, then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? We're going to learn more about Judas in the coming weeks, but What prompted him? We're not told, but I wonder if he was getting excited about, you know, we, we rode into Jerusalem. Everybody was putting their palm branches and their coats down in front of this. He, the kingdom's coming. The overthrow's about to happen, and you can't wait. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute. He's talking about dying on a cross. I'm not into that losing stuff. I'm not into that defeatism. No. Perhaps he's angry. He just got rebuked, by the way. Jesus just told him, leave her alone. He's angry about the money. He's angry about what it could have done for him and, and, and how it could have made him look. And he leaves in this, in this anger. He, who, who knows exactly why? The, some believe Judas, his last name had to do with, was connected to, to some zealots. Perhaps he was one of the Jewish zealots that was just, you know, uh, just, just all he wanted to do was kill all the Romans and kick them out. Here Judas is waiting waiting for the, the kingdom, the kingdom, the way I see the kingdom being, and you're taking too long, Jesus. And all of a sudden, you switch gears, and you're in a gear I can't travel on. There's no way I'm going to go down that road. Sure, Jesus is right in front of me, but I want my plan. And so he goes to the chief priests, and he which I'm sure they were so willing and welcoming of him, one of their own, so they could do their plan in secret. 
He would know where he would be. He would know where the best place to capture him is. And so Judah says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And it says they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, we know Judas was greedy, but the truth is he sells Jesus out on the cheap. Thirty pieces of silver might sound a lot to you and I, but according to Exodus 21, it was the price of a slave. If an ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver. Here he was barking about all of the money that could have been had from this alabaster box ointment. And he sells out the master at the price of an injured slave. And I just want us to think about this. If you're a Christian here today, You have the greatest treasure. You you have the greatest treasure right now. Is there much ahead? Oh, yeah. Yes. But you have it now in Christ. What would you exchange that for? A compliment from someone that doesn't follow Christ? A pat on the back and an applause from the crowd? The reputation of he's not one of those weirdos? A few moments of pleasure and sin? Spurgeon said, yet many have sold Jesus for a less price than Judas received. A smile or a sneer has been sufficient to induce them to betray their Lord. Matthew has painted some glorious picture in front of us. He made it clear what his plans are. He made it clear that this plan's already been in place and now's the time. He made it clear that he's in full control of everything, that he voluntarily, according to the glorious plan of God, will be going to a cross to be delivered up, to be judged as the judge, to once again show that God draws straight with crooked lines. He can be trusted. We've seen this picture of Mary, the beautiful display of true worship, extravagant worship poured out upon Jesus and that that poured out gift was not a waste. And we've seen a man who had Jesus right in front of him. And he exchanged him for a handful of coins. 
Nothing about the cross of Christ is a whim. And nothing poured out in worship is ever a waste. And nothing exchanged for Christ is ever worth it. And my prayer for us as a church is that as we draw closer and closer each week to the cross, that we would, we would stand in awe of the plan of God, of the grace of God, of the mercy of God. That, that when we gather and, and be encouraged in the Word and, and celebrate the communion as we're going to do in just a moment, let me invite the, the music team to come and prepare us for that, that, we, that you would remember and that that remembrance would lead you to worship. It would never be flippant or casual. And perhaps if you're here today and maybe you're hearing some such things for the first time and you, you've heard of Jesus but you don't know Him as, as your Lord, as your Savior in a personal, intimate, communing way, let me invite you to respond to the good news that is good because we're so bad. We could, we're, we're sinful people, and we deserve the judgment of God for our sin. We're sinners by, by deed, and we're sinners by nature, and there's no hope. There's no way to, to, to work yourself enough good deeds to get out of that predicament. There's only grace. The grace of God is the good news that God sent His only Son. Fully God, fully man, born of the Virgin Mary, walked this planet sinless, went to the cross purposefully, sacrificially, where as He hung there, He received the judgment, the wrath, the punishment that I deserved that you deserved, and instead He poured it on Jesus, and Jesus willingly took it. And He died there on the cross as the Passover lamb sacrificed for the sins. And they buried Him in the tomb, and on the third day He rose again. We're going we're gonna to be studying this in the coming weeks over and over. Don't ever get tired of it. He rose from the grave he rose from the dead. He showed himself to hundreds of people. And 40 days later, he ascended to heaven and he sent his spirit, that very same spirit that indwells all who believe today and perhaps that same spirit that is bringing your heart to conviction right now. The conviction to confess that, yes, Jesus is Lord. Save me. Forgive me of my sins change my life. Let Turn my heart into the heart of a Mary to worship you. We're going to receive the communion and remember Him right now. We're going to eat the bread which speaks of His body broken for us. We're going to drink of the cup which speaks of His blood shed for us, the, the blood of the Passover lamb. We're going to ingest the gospel truth. And we're going to remember and we're going to worship. And so this is for Christians. If, if you're a Christian, welcome to the table. Come. Come forward at the, 
during the music as, as it's playing, and let's grab one of these materials of, of, of uh, the communion supplies and take it to your seat, and would you just give thanks? And would you say a prayer as well that God search my heart, and, and is there anything in me that I am holding back? Principially, is there anything that I'm going to hang on to that I would not be willing in a heart of worship to lay down before you? Ask Him by His grace to remove everything from your way of true worship. And so, Father, we come to You now, worshiping You, praising You, glorifying You, in awe of Jesus, of who He is and what He's done. And I pray, God, that as we now come to take the communion, That every worshiper would be full of joy and gladness and celebration and awe and reverence and amazement at who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We pray you would bless our worship now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.